Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on LitHub Radio, episode 186, George Saunders. Today, we welcome one of our favorite authors to the podcast. George Saunders is here to discuss his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which takes a close look at seven Russian short stories and offers insights on reading and writing. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. You wow. Guys, are you guys nervous? <laughs> so, yeah, we just finished... Uh, an incredible discussion with George Saunders, who um, we did our episode on Lincoln and the Bardo maybe a hundred episodes ago. Well, but <laughs> one of our favorite books that we've ever had on the on the podcast, and also one of our favorite authors even before Lincoln and the Bardo. And um, yeah, with this new book uh, coming out, we were able to get him on our show. And uh, how'd you guys think it went? Oh, it was it was so great. You know. Sometimes when you meet a hero, it's um, dispiriting, (laughs) (laughs) to say the very least. It's dispiriting, and then sometimes you meet a hero, and they're they're just exactly what you wanted them to be. And um, and as I think listeners will hear in just a couple minutes, um, he he talks like he writes, and that is a wonderful experience. Just a, a charming. Wonderful guy, so smart. I just learned so much just from reading his book and, and just listening to him talk. It was a, it was, it was fucking great. After after this horrible week we've had, it was just great to sit down and chat with him. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I we know our listeners are readers first, and maybe some of them have some writing aspirations or further writing aspirations if they're already writers. And I feel like you're gonna really enjoy this episode and. Save it permanently on your phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not because of us. No, just because of George. And it, it was great. And, yeah. you know, the we didn't actually get to go in depth to a lot of the stories that are in the anthology. Um, but if you don't have a, a great sort of background in Russian literature, which I presume that most of our listeners do not, um, in this book, he picks seven really great um, examples of Russian literature. Um, and not every story is works, which is also kind of cool. Um, and so it's neat to read this and also see, as you're reading it, the history of narrative fiction that has come down from it. Uh, that Particularly if you like a writer like Alice Munro, um, you know, the Alice Munro writes Russian short stories. And um, reading this anthology that he's essentially put together to go along with his teachings um, is very inspiring in, in that regard. And uh, and now that we're no longer going to be living in Russia in a couple weeks, um, you know, it's fun, to, <laughs> it's fun to look back on the former time. <laughs> if you're a fan of literary disco, then you're a fan of stories. And you should check out Far Away, a new short story collection from Amazon Original Stories. Far Away gathers five of today's most original best-selling authors for bold new takes on classic fairy tales. These are not your typical happily ever after kind of stories. These five stories for adults offer new takes on evil queens, charmless princes, and star-crossed lovers, taking old standards in new and interesting directions. The Far Away Collection is available in audio and ebook format. Amazon Prime members listen and read for free. Download now at amazon.com slash faraway-stories. That's amazon.com slash faraway-stories. 
So normally what we do on the disco when we have a, a writer or a guest visit is we ask them to pick a book for us all to read, basically as a book club and discuss. And you've already done that. That's kind of baked into a swim in a pond in the rain. Um, you've taken seven incredible Russian short stories uh, and uh, gone through them as a reader and a writer describing what you've learned and what you've been able to teach from these stories. Um, I found this an incredible book, um, basically because this is how I, this is how I want all of my favorite authors to <laughs> introduce literature to me. Like I want everybody who I, who I love reading, who I love their work to, to, to be able, like, to, especially when that first story, you, where you go page by page, breaking down basically how you read the story. That is just, Unbelievable for me, like that is like uh, you know I I, I equate it to like hearing DVD commentary, you know, or something. <laughs> and I really wish more books were sort of existed like this. So how did this come about? I mean, obviously it, it's based on your teaching experience, right? Right. My teaching load is getting lighter now, so I probably will never actually teach this Russian class in person again. Mm -hmm. So I realized that, and uh, it was after I taught another class, and I just had that feeling and that I'm sure you know from from being in Bennington where you know you something magical happens in the classroom that you're all just one unit you know uh, and you're all motivated by your own artistic practice you're hungry to find something out because you're desperately uh, trying to be yourself on the page and something's right. obstructing you so I, I came out of that classroom like man you know really and truly um, at this stage in life looking back so, some of the some of the happiest days of my life were spent that way you know <laughs> and, and I thought well if I don't Right. Some of this stuff down now is going to be lost, you know, which is not a great loss, but, but you do feel like you have something of substance when you've had 20 years of students, you know, co-teaching with you. So it was really just that. And then I sort of let that be a guiding principle, like at every aesthetic crossroads, when I was writing the book, make it more like a class mm -hmm. and make it more like a, an, a, you know, an attempt to be a meeting of minds between me and the reader that, that has the same flavor as the class. And my classes were never lectures. They were always just, let's, you know, let's look at this, <laughs> this corpse on the table and see what made it used to make it live, you know? And uh, so I was trying, I was trying to get that in that tone into the book. I you know, love that you say corpse too, because there's something so physical about your teaching. You're cutting up the stories, you're highlighting mm -hmm. the stories, <laughs> like you're dealing with them as little bodies. So it was really fun. I mean, it's, it's so great that this is a gift to people who might never be able to afford a collegiate or graduate level writing class. This is mm -hmm. a writing class. And as you say within it, even if you don't like the class, you've still got seven spectacular stories. <laughs> it's like when you get that. And also, you know, and yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you could just get scissors and cut out my shit. Just get the scissors and eliminate it. But I mean, but you know, one of the things too, is that, is that as is true in the classroom, as you guys would know, if somebody comes in and hates a story by a writer, that's great news for the teacher. That's, right. that's, it's just as good as if somebody loved it. It's you're taking a, you're doing a kind of a judo of the energy. Somebody comes in and says, I can't stand this Turgenev story. You rub your hands together with glee as a teacher, because <laughs> you know, you can do a lot, a lot with that. So that was always part of the fun of the class was, and I always try to emphasize that I'm not an expert in, well, in anything actually. Uh, so I, I just, my job is to be, provocative and to try to direct the group's attention to hot spots in the story, trusting that these amazing students will, you know, will rise to the occasion and will, and that each person will take what they need out of it instead of what mm -hmm. I want to give them, you know? 
Right. Well, it, it's so funny that you bring up, you know, a, a story that doesn't quite work because the the as, before the show we were talking and I said, the thrilling thing for me is reading that story that doesn't work. <laughs> and then having that moment where the students, they, the students, of course, think you've picked the story because it's brilliant. And so they come in with an expectation that you've set as the professor. So you're creating your own short story. The, the, here's the expectation. We're going to talk about this great dead Russian and this great dead Russian story. And they're at home and they're like, there's a section where he stops the narrative and says, let's discuss these people in minute detail about the husky people. Like, and, and they're like, oh my God, George Saunders is a moron. He has no idea that the story doesn't work. <laughs> I love that. I mean, that that for me as a, as a professor is the, the best, is, is talking about a thing that doesn't quite work. And yet by the end of the story still has that emotional kick in the stomach. You know, and because the singers yeah, yeah. doesn't work until it does work. And I also, you know, I would I didn't quite want to do this in the book, but we, I've also taught stories that just don't work. You know, right. uh, especially if you if you can find a Chekhov story that isn't up to the highest level. It's great, you know, to say, all right, this I, I always think of a story called the name day party, which is good. I mean, it's Chekhov, but it's not up to the level of the ones in this book. It's really an amazing class to, to just say that. And then try to really turn your mind to why not. And it's really, you know, it's hard to, to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, for me as, um, as a professor, reading this was just like you had said, it was like those moments where the classroom disappears and you're having every geek fantasy you ever had. Like, we're going to spend three timeless hours talking about <laughs> fake people and their motivations. <laughs> like, I wonder if, like, if the civilians in the world <laughs> are going to get that same sort of magical feeling that we all get when we're, we're in that, that space of tearing apart a piece of art and looking at the machinery of it, because that's really what the book does at such a high level is it, it shows how the magic trick is made. And I love that. Well, we're going to find out about that, I guess. But you <laughs> know, it was, it was something about halfway through. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out. But I, I, I did about halfway through, I thought, I wonder if I can... Um, you know, come at this in the next draft with with that exact question in mind. Like, if you're, a, as you beautifully put, a civilian, uh, is there anything in this to recommend it to you? And I thought, well, really, you know, a reader and a writer, they're not they're not that different, you know. But but um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. But so far, I've I've talked to a lot of people who are you know quote unquote just readers, and uh, they seem to appreciate the under the hood quality of it so far. But we'll, mm -hmm. we'll find out. Well, writer, you you had a question about the the reading and the writing, didn't you? Yeah, well, that, that was, I was curious if you could, uh, you know, I've often wondered about this because I'm, you know, I, I've I've been writing since I was a kid, and and uh, I remember I had this this moment when I took my first film class in college, where the professor said, uh, you know, this is an intro to film class. Uh, part of studying film is going to ruin film forever for you. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I think she was right. She was like, so if you really love movies and just want to love movies, walk away now. Uh, you know, this is, now's your chance, oh, really? get out. And, and I, I think that there was some truth to that, you know, that, that for, you know, for the rest of my life, I mean, I already at that point, like I said, I was already watching DVD commentaries, but the idea of like, you know, whether you're a reader or a writer or a filmmaker watching a film, like, do you, do you, is there a, a is there, 
Uh, is there ever a time where you can turn off the writer part of your brain and mm. just read something? Or are you always basically reading like you introduce these stories in this book? Yeah, that's a great question. No, for me, it's not a problem. I, I When I read, uh, there's a big reader in my head that just takes over. And in the back, there might be that engineer kind of going, oh, interesting. You know, the escalation <laughs> has failed. <laughs> but but it, but really not really not you know um, and so that's maybe good and I always tell my students you know if if this kind of analysis offends you you really don't have to do it there's no there's nothing that says that we have to do this kind of thing but I do try to encourage the idea that if you can do it it actually can enhance your enjoyment you know mm -hmm, even at speed right. even on a first read um, so but you know that's again my my take on teaching is you just kind of say here's how I do it and. You know, I'm a kind of a have a strange mind. Uh, my art is working to make that strange mind productive in prose. You know, it, mm -hmm. so that's a very specialized skill. Uh, there's no reason that should transfer to anybody else. So what I do is at the beginning of the semester, I say everything you're going to hear is according to me. Just let it fall on you. Take whatever you need, ranging from zero to ninety nine percent, and we're good. You know, there's no expectation that it's correct or anything like that. You know, right. yeah, the aim is always to help. You know. And I think people will take whatever they want, whether it's an appreciation for the stories or, you know, we also read Lincoln and the Bardo um, on the podcast a, a while ago. So people are thirsty for more. <laughs> uh, but I, I wanted to talk to you about that engineering point of view um, that you bring into your reading and writing because it just resonated with me so hard um, as a professional improviser. I mean, so much of what you're describing is how actors and improvisers and improvising musicians think of like, I'm just going to say a quick line and everything else is a table that comes off of that quick line. And each decision mm. has this architectural effect on everything that's come before or will come after. Um, and that was so cool. And I was wondering if you wanted to articulate a little bit more of that, um, both as a, a reader, but even more so as a writer. Yeah. Well, you know, I had, I, I was from a background where I didn't know any artists really. And so when I came to art, I assumed that you had to know everything you were going to do and then just do it. You know, you mm -hmm. do it to the reader, basically, right. whether they like right. it or not. Um, and then I had kind of, I had a long struggle with that, you know, where I, I, um, I had too many ideas, basically too much agenda. And then there was one little breakthrough that I described in the book where suddenly the improv part of me and in Chicago, we used to do a lot of kind of just casual around the house improv, you know, that was a way of being powerful if you, if you had nothing else going on. Um, <laughs> and, but then on Sunday, I realized that you, that that's actually what writing could be. It could be um, an instantaneous response in that line to what had just come before. Right. And that in fact, that's really all it is. It's a linear temporal thing. You, you get into a story, your mind starts inflecting uh, and you're responding in real time to your approximation of what, the reader would be feeling something like that you know right that was an amazing thing because it cleared so much crap away about mm -hmm. theme and plot and intent. You just be there you know be there the way an intelligent lovely first-time reader would be uh and then you get a bonus which is you get to come back to, to the next day in the same state of mind you know mm -hmm. so as you know from being an improviser that 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 is an approach to life actually you know it's not just an approach to, to writing um, also, I think a lot of this engineering stuff, for me, it comes out of kind of this real simple little thing, which is maybe every moment of life is there's you, relatively blank mind. 
phenomenon arises, whether it's a book or a bus coming at you or the love of your life, the, the mind in, inflects. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you're smart, you bless that reaction. You mm-hmm. notice and bless it. And then if you're a critic, you try to articulate it. That's really <laughs> it. You know, so I think that, that when you're a, a confident, a, a confident critic is somebody who, who, um, trust the data coming out of their own mind as valid, no matter how weird it seems and then can articulate it. And I think a confident writer or creator is somebody who in response to his or her own text goes, yeah, yeah, I'm cutting that. Why? Mm, not that important. I feel like it, you know, so mm-hmm. that, that's been my approach. And really the main reason I like it is because it takes so much stress away, you know, so much of the stress of what's my topic. Should I write about my hometown? What's my voice? Don't worry about it. You're going to find that out in in process basically you know it's so funny that reminds me of and i I might have mentioned this on the show before but um the crime writer donald westlake who was a big hero of mine you know he was my young adult fiction was reading donald westlake novels and (laughs) i you know i got a chance to interview him once and you know i had always been impressed by the way he ended his books and his stories because I'm terrible with endings, both on the page and interpersonally. And, um, you know, I had said to him- That's why you're married to seven people. (laughs) That's why I find the Mormon faith so free. Um, You know, I I said to him, you know, how do you know when a story is over? How do you know when your novel is over? How do you know when a scene is over? And he said, I know it's over when the reader could write the next line. And it's such a simple Mm, sort of declaration, right? But it's also goes to the spirit of what you what you and Julia were just talking about, about sort of the nature of improvisation and the nature of surprise for the reader. Um, and when I, you know, when I think about the stories that you picked, the, you know, I, I could not have predicted how um, the master story w- was going to end. I'd never read that story. Mm. Um, I, mm. I could not have predicted that I would find joy and effervescence at the end of it, that I would find myself fulfilled spiritually from that story. There was no point where I could write the next line that would get to that ending, even though the expectation- exactly. That's beautiful. That he sets up is, oh, well, this is gonna be, people are gonna freeze to death. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you, you just, he, he doesn't ever give away the farm. And I, I just love that. And I love that that story actually fulfills sort of the promises that you're talking about early on about setting reader expectation, about going line by line and building the next, you know, sort of what if question and the but question um, to that stunning ending of, you know, like, oh, the presence of, of God, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I just love that. Um, no, so that's brilliant. Can- and, you know, it also ties in, it ties into something else, which is this idea of always escalate. And really, you said it beautifully that if, if the, um, if the next thing is stasis, if the next thing only uh, is flatlined, just just stop. You know, you, you you can keep writing as long as your your the story is continuing to be revelatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it you know, and that so that there's no need to to underscore. There's no need to do what I'm doing right now is to repeat the thing you just said. <laughs> no, you can stop. <laughs> well, that's well, the end of the show, George. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm just going to piggyback on this, the, the, you know, this, this whole discussion of surprise. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, you take that level of surprise beyond just 
the, the process of discovery in writing, but also in your own life as a writer, uh, you know, discovering that your voice was not what you expected it to right, be. Right, yeah. That is one of the, that like, so cool. that's one of those things that I really wish I had had you in my MFA program <laughs> because <laughs> that really struck home to me. You know, it's a, is, is this idea that we all, we all become writers basically because we love reading. And, and so we emulate our heroes, right? We, we have these people. And so for me, that was, you know, at 16, it was horrible wannabe Kerouac stuff. And, you know, and it's, like, and, and it's so, it's so hard to sort of confront, you know, when you, when you're taking writing seriously, especially in your early twenties, it's so hard to confront that idea, right? That, that you're not going to be the voice that you thought you, that you wanted to be maybe. And that that's actually, uh, right probably for the best. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that process of discovery for you uh, because it was so honest and, 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 and loving, lovely to hear in the book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I really uh, like to talk to my students about this because it's such a bittersweet moment. It's not what you expect. You know, mm -hmm. when you're young and you think, oh, I'm going to find my voice, you think it'll be, you know, majestic, but it's a little disappointing, actually. <laughs> you know, you, 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 uh, this is you know, all I got? You're still, you're still just you. You know, you're still just you. <laughs> Um, but if you're like me, you know, you've been wandering in the wilderness, imitating Kerouac for sure, Hemingway, uh, Malcolm Lowry for a while, uh, James Joyce. Um, right. You've been doing that for so long that you're just and, and I think what happens is very beautiful is that suddenly you realize that those voices are not going to get to the things that you have actually at great cost learned mm -hmm. in your life at 28 or 29 or however old you are. There, there's things that have happened to you that are profound almost unspeakable, either for good or bad, someone else's voice is not going to get you there, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, yeah, I, I, I think a little bit of some kind of MacGyver thing where you've got a suitcase and you have to go through a small door or you're, you'll die. You have to lose a suitcase, you know? So at that point, you have to jettison all your attachments to these writing heroes. And if you're a person who loves language, as we all are, those attachments are very strong, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But working in counterweight is that horrible feeling that I'm sure we've all had where you write something and it's not you. It's, yeah. it's some inferior person trying to convey something, you know, so it's really high risk stuff, you know, and um, I have books there is an element. Like I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's high risk, you know, but, it, and, um, you know, it's that hardest job of all, which is to actually do what only you can do, you know, that and that, that's easier said than done, for sure. I would love to, just for our <laughs> listeners, um, uh, and to embarrass you a little, I just love to read this section because I think it's going to be everywhere when this book comes out. And this is the part people will be copying and pasting into their Facebook pages. <laughs> uh, okay, so this moment of supposed triumph, I'd finally found my voice was also sad. It was this... It was as if I'd sent the hunting dog that was my talent out across a meadow to fetch a magnificent pheasant, and it had brought back, let's say, the lower half of a Barbie doll. <laughs> to put it another way, having gone about as high up Hemingway Mountain as I could go, having realized that even at my best, I could only ever hope to be an acolyte up there, resolving never again to commit the sin of being imitative, I stumbled back down into the valley and came upon a little shithill labeled Song mountain hmm i thought it's so little and it's a shithill <laughs> then again that was my name on it but that is so much like it's funny it's really sad it's so many um, years of therapy it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 
And it's a hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. Yeah. But yeah. But you know, I mean, the thing is it, that's, uh, I think it's, there's an analog just to your personality. Like, you know, when I was younger, I had it in mind that I looked a certain way and I presented a certain way and I was very glamorous and kind of James Bond on the South side of Chicago or something like that. <laughs> and then, you know, you, you, you see a photo or you, you know, eventually you have to say, I, I can't, I can't progress if I don't accept, you know, mm. this is what it is. And then there, it can be weirdly celebratory because once you accept, you find out there are all kinds of side rooms in that, that person who, who, um, and all kinds of things to exaggerate and to, and to bring out. So I think that is kind of a necessary first step, unfortunately, uh, for, mm -hmm. for most of us. You know. Yeah, well, but you know, actually, I'm interested in how that is developed. I mean, has it, uh, is, that, is it an ongoing discovery of your own voice? Or does it, oh. I mean, have you had moments where you actually almost feel trapped by this, this George Saunders character uh, voice that sort of feels like something outside of you? hundred percent. And actually the two things you said are exactly the same thing. You, you, uh, you feel trapped and you try to wriggle out of that by saying there is no voice. It is my voice. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I am large. I contain multitudes. <laughs> um, the, the danger I think is that, you know, for something like me, my first book didn't come out till I was 37 or 38, you know, and it was a pretty slim little book. So, and my life changed. And so then at that point, that the tendency I think is to cling to whatever you just did right. Mm -hmm. like crazy. So you don't get kicked out of the party again, you know, right. and that's a really fatal moment. Then, then you have to say, wait a minute. I, I, that was good, but I have to assume that there are additional depths to me. Right. And the day that that plays out is when you should really quit because you know, that's, that's how you become a hack. I think is when you, you remember what you did and try to do it again, right. but that's not what you were doing the first time. You know, it might be, it might be like acting where you have a take spontaneous take something doesn't work you try to do that spontaneous thing again that's not quite the same as you did the first time so it's, it's a beautiful ongoing challenge and as you get older um 62 you know you 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 map out the sort of terrain of your of your limited talent and you're like oh i'm running out of shit here you know there's not um <laughs> You know, uh, and then you go, well, let me let me try that again, but I'll do something different with it. And that's why the Lincoln book was big for me, because I went into I kind of went over a fence that I had um, yeah. after the first book promised to never go over again, which is, let's say, earnestness, you know. So that's fun. You know, it's fun to have something in your life that um, <laughs> I always say that if, you know, if the if the brain was a, uh, oh, I don't know, a sphincter, you know. If your brain was a sphincter at about 50, it starts tightening up, you know, <laughs> and you start being the guy who only likes the bands that were popular when you were a kid. And, you know, and, and George, my those, 50th birthday is on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, there's still time. There's still time. But, you know, our... <laughs> but but art, art is a way art is a way. To, I mean, this is a terrible metaphor, but art is a way to sort of, you know. I, I won't say pry open your sphincter because that would be gross, but <laughs> art is a way to kind of um, artificially uh, keep keep growing, you know, and you can yeah. tell if you're growing by if your work is getting better mm -hmm. and if it interests you, you know, so that's a nice, a nice thing to have around. Well, you know, going back to Lincoln and the Bardo, as, and as it relates to what you talk about in this book, the, the thing that is amazing to me is, you know, what reading does for us when we've read a lot is we bring our own expectations for how fiction is going to work. And so when you're teaching um, MFA students or undergrads about, you know, these Russian stories and saying, okay, you know, here's what Tolstoy is going to do. Here's what you can expect by page 12 from this book. 
and it runs along certain lines. And then you say, oh, right, I, I know that it's going to work like this because I've read Alice Monroe or I've read Richard Ford or I've read Margaret Atwood or whatever. I've read down the tree of the Russians without ever reading the Russians. <laughs> but then you in Lincoln and the Bardo create something that has no expectation because there's been no book that has existed that follows the <laughs> rules that you have created. And so like what I recall just from opening up that book in the first 15 pages, I, my first thought was, I have no idea what's going on. Also, fuck this guy. I, I, I cannot stop reading. This is absolutely genius. Even though for the first you know nine minutes of my reading, I don't know what's happening. And then by the time the book is over, all I can think of is, well, I'm not ever going to write again because I can't even imagine how his mind went to that place to create this world that I now understand completely. I don't know what the question is. I think I'm just sort of a little angry. <laughs> Keep going. Keep asking it. Keep asking it. No, no, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Um, so when... No, but I can also... I'll also tell you... There were there were a lot of people who got who fought, had your exact experience and said fuck you but didn't keep reading. I meet many of them at, at public events. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're at the bottom of your Goodreads page. Um, but like you know that's the, that's the confidence though, right? Of having tried and failed a lot to get to that point to say, all right, well I'm going to see this through. I'm going to I'm going to spend these next X number of years writing this, and if I fail, I'm going to fail miraculously, but it's not going to be for lack of vision, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually that you're exactly right. Because that what happened to me was I had had that book around in my mind for a long time and uh, was really kind of scared, you know, in that artistic way. Like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tank my, my, you know, little career. Uh, and then um, at some point there was just this voice that said, dude, you know, you, you done pretty well for yourself. You know, if you died right now, it'd be fine. You know, you have some <laughs> books. Why not just give yourself six months, you know, get, take a six month contract to try it. Nobody needs to know about it, you know? And right. so, yeah, it was definitely, it, it's, you know, you always talk, you hear artists talking about that. You've got to be bold and try new things. It's harder than it looks, you know, because mm -hmm. that does mean uh, turning your back on all the things that have got you to the party. Uh, but it's really, you know, a delicious thing because that book, it kind of taught me how to do it. You know, mm -hmm. as I, I'd go in there every day, so, eager to start because the book was just ready to tell me how to write it. You know, it was really a one, I've never had that experience before. You know, if, if I want to get a big laugh at a reading, I just say, how many people uh, read the book to page 30 and walked away? And it's, you know, it's, you know, or, or I'll hear a lot of people say, a lot of people in my family will, or, you know, people will say, well, I bought your book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a little close uh, yeah, to home uh, <laughs> yeah all right, well, you, all right. You, i you started know the, your book yeah. the, the the funny thing too is like if, when you're making a a huge leap to write this book like i've always had this notion in my head like never give anything a title that they can use against you if your book is terrible or if your story is terrible <laughs> and so like you know yeah. saunders in the bardo you're like oh god i <laughs> fucked it up they know <laughs> right right yeah yeah that's why you should never name your novel a miserable endeavor <laughs> a new novel a pretentious piece of shit <laughs> Well, there was that book, uh, Jim C. Willard's book, winner of the National Book Award. That was that was a smart one. <laughs> There's something um, for for me, uh, you know. I, we're recording this uh, during a pretty pretty 
a tumultuous time politically, yeah, <laughs> literally like this least. weekend. Um, <clears throat> but it, you know, it's also interesting to me to consider how much Lincoln and the Bardo affected me to be reading it when I was reading, and you know, essentially during the Trump years. And um, and you know, there 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 was a lot of political stuff in there without it being nakedly political. And you have this great section in in this book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, where you talk about just the idea that fiction doesn't support polemic very well. Uh, and I love that, you know, you, and you, you use the metaphor that if you build a dollhouse out of ice cream and then put it in the sun, it doesn't prove the notion houses melt. Um, <laughs> and I just think that, that that's so brilliant. Um, but I do feel like your stuff addresses, you know, is political in, in, in some ways, um, it, not polemical, but certainly political. And so, and, and, and looking back at these Russian authors, you know, we were talking before and, and Todd was pointing out, like, it's like, these people were dealing with wars and famine and, um, you know, some horrible political situations and writing these things that are political without being nakedly polemical. Uh, so I just, I'm, I'm curious, mm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how, how, how you write in this political moment, but what pressures you feel yeah. when, when we're living in a time when, you know, I feel like even 10 years ago, you could go a day without the word politics being said right. or government, but now we live in a time where that's mm -hmm. virtually impossible. And yeah. so I'm curious about how you create the space in your mind to write fiction that still seems relevant. Yeah. I, for me, I think the trick is to, um, you know, I tell my students that we have to learn to self game, which means, uh, train ourselves to think in ways that help us be productive, which also means sometimes you turn away from certain questions because they just, they just bog you down, you know? So for me, one of the self gaming things I do is I say, okay, at the ultimate level, a story that does what a story does best is going to be political in just the way that you described. It's about people behaving, you know? Um, it doesn't have to be right on the nose. It, it, and, and in fact, uh, I think about a Chekhov story called Grief, uh, and oh, the whole story is just story. this cab driver kind of downtrodden, lower class mm -hmm. guy. Beautiful story, right? Mm -hmm. And his son has died and he keeps trying to tell people about it just in the way that you do. You know, people are ignoring him, hitting him with, you know, really being mean to him. And in the end, he can't get any release. So he tells his horse. He just puts his head against the horse's head and said, I had a son, you know. <laughs> now, that's just so beautiful. It's deeply political, really. I mean, it proves that this guy has a soul and that loneliness is real. So I kind of just, for my purposes, I kind of just don't, I pretend that there's no difference. It's just, if I'm, if I'm seeing another human being fully in a story and making you see her, that's political. The other thing that I learned from these Russians is stories, as Chekhov said, they don't have to solve problems. They just have to formulate them correctly. So okay. a story like Gooseberries in this book, which is about happiness, and at some point seems to be for it and some seem to be against it, it's actually more of an exercise that Chekhov puts you through in multiplicity. You know, you, you read that story and you say, well, Anton, what am I supposed to think about happiness? And he just walks out of the room, mm -hmm. but you are thinking about happiness. So, so things can work, you know, in a lot of different ways to serve good, you know, and to serve political good. I personally, I don't know what I would write about this moment. I just trust that if I keep my eyes open, it's all percolating in. And it might come mm. out three years from now in a story about a talking pencil sharpener, but <laughs> it's, you know, it's still, right. but, but really, potatoes. I just say that because it helps me. It helps me be productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, don't steal that. That's, that's good. <laughs> I, think, I think Amy Bender already wrote that one. <laughs> Spuds. Spuds. Spuds, the story of Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing I, I was thinking about too, um, 
as it relates to sort of the, the politics in these stories, the background of history that exists in here um, and how these stories relate to your students. Um, you know, getting the students, getting a 24 year old to read the Russians when they mostly care about how many likes they have on their Instagram account um, and trying to make them understand how important a life completely unlike their own is in literature. And then they read a story like say, Darling, and they realize, oh yeah, like uh, obsessive, um, unhealthy relationships <laughs> go back to the beginning of time. Um, you know, I, I'm always surprised for my own students when that have no sort of, you know, no, no great desire to read outside of their time or their culture when they realize that people that were our enemy have the same wants and needs that we have. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious yeah. as you're teaching these stories and obviously the, the students are taking these classes because they want to take it. So there's, you know, you're self-selecting a little bit. Um, are the students surprised by how they are reacting to people, you know, two centuries ago in a, a, another world or a century ago in another world um, that seem to have the same problems that we have? These students are pretty high level. So they, uh, I, I would say what, ha what happens sometimes is they'll have a bit of resistance to the mustiness of the stories and to mm. the, you know, to the, all the, the sexism and so right. on. And then I think what my job at that point is to be really like completely okay with that tolerant, you know, never to be the one saying, you know, the stories aren't the ones being judged. That, you know, that's a bad, <laughs> a bad stance. Just to say, yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, right. I, <laughs> I get that, you know, so because I, when I was young, I didn't, I read Chekhov and I didn't get it. It seemed kind of dull, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest power at that point is to be really patient and say, yeah, no, it's totally understandable if these stories aren't speaking to you, maybe they're not for you. But since you said you're going to make your life around writing, and since everybody you know has been influenced by these people, it behooves us to at least give it a try. Just mm -hmm. give it a try, you know? Uh, if you were going to argue for the story, how would you argue for it? Was there anything in it that came alive for you. And then I find that once you build that big doorway, uh, they actually do find things that they, that they like and that they learn mm -hmm. from. And again, if they don't, that's, that's valid. You know, you can, you can right. work with that a little bit. You know? I mean, there, there are a lot of descriptions of women in the same words that they'd use to describe a Holstein. <laughs> like the Russians are sort of uniformly, yeah. she was yeah. a brusque, handsome lass. Like, geez. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of handsome ladies yeah no i was just gonna say in that sense then if someone says that what we do is you go right can we make an argument that that's an uh an, an aesthetic decision or right. is it just sloppy sexism right and mm -hmm. that's a good discussion to have that is you know great because there are yeah. certainly if, if in the mind of a character like in that yeah that lady with pet dog by chekhov the guy is a real player he's a sexist he's kind of a pig and the whole story is about the question of whether he can transform so aesthetically you first have to establish him as a pig which which Chekhov is really good at doing you know whereas uh, sometimes in a student story somebody is just you know there's just weird uh gratuitous oral sex for no reason <laughs> because the young 21 year old kid hopes that'll happen you know that's did different. you like that that's different. did you like that part <laughs> that's that's the true part I'm capable of that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is based on real life. Yeah, it could happen. It really, but the, but it really happened. Thirty-seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of your your new book is this the section on causality, um, and you 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 talk about basically how 
unsexy causality is, you know, but also how essential it is. And you, you have this incredible metaphor where you talk about a, mm. the kite, you know, like a beautiful sentence or a series of sentences, like a beautiful kite. It's just lying there and causality or plot or story which is, is what brings it up into the air and makes it a thing. I just thought that was so mm. brilliant. And also it speaks to, you know, what has been the hardest thing for me to learn as a writer. Now, as a screenwriter, it's all I do, right? It's, everything is causality and that's, it, it, and it is, mm. it feels, it feels kind of uh, dirty. It feels kind of <laughs> lame, you know, but it is the reason why we're there, why we're reading the thing. Is that the hardest yep. thing to teach students? Is that is that consistently the hardest thing to yeah. teach? Mm -hmm. Yes, because I'm not sure it can be taught. I think it's one of those things you have to see it and then go, oh, or it might be a little bit even like evolution where you have to accidentally do it once. You, know, you accidentally make something that's nicely causal and you go, oh, shit, that's what they're talking about, you know, and then you can kind of, I guess, back learn through the back door somehow. Uh, it's really hard. And I think it's just, um, you know, it's it's kind of uh, the way a story means is A causes B. And so we you you have to kind of accept that. Uh, and, you know, there I've read a whole 300 page student novels that were really brilliant, but nothing caused anything. Right. And yes, I think the gosh. reading mind just can't do it. We, you can't, you can't go ahead if, if something isn't causing anything. So yeah. I, I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, accepting that we are in sort of the entertainment business. If you, if you <laughs> define that word broadly, you know, we're trying to compel somebody to stay with us. Um, causality is a great, great way to do that. But I don't really think it can be taught. I've never, I don't think I've ever successfully taught it. You, you can talk about it a lot. And one of the things I try to do in this book is just make a person alert to it, what it mm -hmm. is. Then you might blunder into it. And it feels so great when you blunder into it that something comes alive in your brain and then you start seeking it. Yeah, I mean, it, it all boils down to, you know, people's ability or inability to understand consequences. You know, if you if you never have understood mm -hmm. consequences, you're never going to get that causality. Um, and, and, and that's why we should give everyone awards. Okay, relax. <laughs> 50-year-old man. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying it out because I'm turning 50. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I feel like people plan so much. Well, they plan so much generally plan their lives but they really plan uh what they're going to say and how they're going to think how they're going to behave um so far into the future and by that i just mean even going into a meeting at work and you think this is what i'm going to say this is right, what i'm going to yeah. say at this meeting and it starts to shut off these valves in your brain of really listening and seeing what's happening around you in a way that I've noticed is is just so like damaging when people say like I'm not creative which drives me crazy um I think they're just they've turned off all those knobs because they're so intent on thinking the way they're going to think five minutes or an hour or a week from now yeah. um and yeah. what you're uh, trying Julie, to do, do you find do you find it go ahead I'm sorry I was saying do you find it imp improv uh helps with that propensity like when you're doing improv do, do you find yourself in real life being more improvisational and more yeah and that's like the part of myself that i'm speaking from now because with improv what improv forces you to do is you know there's another person you have to deal with there's this it's not you you know <laughs> agreeing with disagreeing with editing yourself you know you you've come up against that wall of the other person so like if i'm improvising and i say okay, this camel is the size of my shoulder, you know, the second person, if they say, 
you know, and here we are at the parade, you know, I can't just throw that out. I have to deal with it immediately. I can't, you know, say like, that's not what I meant, or I had this other idea. Um, So Mm. having to deal with another person really helps. But I will say that people, when they first start doing any improvisational art form, like they get really mad when things don't go the way that they wanted them to go. Real anger, deep anger um, at the other people, at the audience, at themselves. um, And they have to let go. Like it is a real process of like, letting go of everything you intended to do and you just have to deal with what you already said mm-hmm. um and right. it's so cool to think of writing in that way that you have to like believe what you said before you have to like re- be really intent on what you just wrote down but you have to throw out anything that you plan to write down even five minutes later right it's a lot like what we're doing now it's not it's what we're doing now i i didn't i knew a little bit about you guys i you come highly recommended uh, I didn't have a plan for what I was going to say. And we're having this conversation that's really based on fun and mutual respect and the idea that we can improvise. We can be in this moment instead of the one that we thought we were going to be in an hour ago. <laughs> to me, that's writing. You know, you, yeah. you, you, you come up to your text and you sort of disavow it in a nice way. Like, ah, you know, you were good yesterday, but we'll see. And then you re-experience <laughs> it w- with, with the confidence that you're going to you're going to tweak it. And then you get to do that over and over. You get to improvise for three years, basically. And, Which also and just makes writing sound like resume. so much more fun. Yeah. I feel like, I feel yeah. like so much of the way I approach writing as a young person was, it's just a slog, you know, it was like, oh, I have this idea yeah. of a scene or a sequence of scenes in my head. And, uh, and now I just have to like translate them. And like the right. writing process was like the, right. the, the right. crappy thing I had to do to sort of pound out what was in my head. And what mm, I really, mm. and it's so true that the, the most enjoyable parts of writing are when I have, have not had that pressure and I discovered mm-hmm. and then enjoyed what I wrote the other day that I didn't even remember I had written, but now it suddenly makes sense. And then I add to it. And so I, I really appreciate that, that you're, you're not only talking about what will produce good work, it will also produce fun work and make, yeah. make producing yeah. work fun, which it, I just really yeah, yeah. appreciate. It's that sort of notion that we lose as adults, that notion of play. Yeah. You know, like the th- this thing that we're doing, and it relates to what Julie was talking about, about improv too, this thing that we're doing is play. We're, we're making shit up for our dolls to do, you know, (laughs) but we just don't have, we just don't have dolls. The dolls are in our head. We just have a nose and a trench coat. Right. Right. And (laughs) you know, that, that sort of idea that what we do should be fun, that it should be play. I think it's lost on us pretty early on. I mean, we actually talked about this in our last episode about what Linda Berry talks about as relates to drawing. Like at some point you realize, oh, I'm a, I'm a shitty drawer, so I'm no longer going to draw. And you lose that entire aspect of your life. And if if writing becomes torture and stops being that fun thing, why would you ever want to do it? <laughs> you know, it just seems terrible. Yeah. yeah, play, I think play doesn't feel serious enough to people. You mm-hmm. know, like it's mm-hmm. the work of a child. It's not the work of an artist. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and you know how much, yeah. and that's so much pressure, you know, uh, uh, writer when you said you have you have the this thing you want to get down instantly that made me anxious because i'm like what if he fucks it up you know <laughs> and, and that that's what you feel yourself yeah. whereas if you think of it, the way i think of it is the, the reader is you know is going to be approximately where i am 
on page six, line 27, you know? So if I can understand about where she is then we can have fun in every, at every moment, we, we can mm-hmm. keep uh, responding to that, which we have between us. That's um, mostly it's reaction. It's, it's reaction to whatever happens to be there, which then also, you know, it can have the effect uh, of wiping away writer's block mm-hmm. because you, the first draft, of course it's crummy, but is there anything in there to react to? Then you're, then you're good, you know? But also I notice, you know, one of the things about this kind of book is you, I really don't like how to writing things because it, yeah. they're, there's no general knowledge, just only specific. And, you know, when, when you write a book, you are kind of making a slight claim to general knowledge. And I, that's why I tried to, I wanted to put the Russians in there so I could always be reacting to a specific <laughs> moment. In oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> well, and it, it makes it work so well. And, you know, it, I don't like, I don't like writing books either, but the, the one that I've always liked is uh, Josip Novakovich's The Writer's Workshop, uh, which I have somewhere on my mm-hmm. shelf over here. You know, he, he's a wonderful writer classically trained and all that sort of good stuff. But, you know, he's he's essentially looking at other great works of writing and saying, this is how they do it. Or Jane Smiley's, you know, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, which does a lot of similar things that you're doing in this book. It's it's a much more effective way to teach creative writing than saying, this is like, you, you must start with character and setting, you know, like, let's just look yeah. at, at something that you enjoy and figure out why you enjoy it, you know, why it yeah, works. Yeah. Uh, although yeah, I have I to ask, though, Julia, when, when you were reading The Darling and it opens with a woman who owns a theater who's miserable in her life, was that <laughs> was that a hard experience for you? Whoa, <laughs> almost as hard as being a mother figure and smothering your child with your love. I don't know. It's a toss up. <laughs> uh, yeah, The Darling is such an amazing story, George, and you know, we've talked mostly about you, um, but I, I love the way that that story escalates without escalating is something you explore. Like how does, how can a repeating pattern seem to both repeat and escalate at the same time? Um, That was just so fascinating and something that I'm going to be on the hunt for in many other pieces of artwork. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's surprised me because when I took it apart, you could see that that it's just, um, sort of micro variations, you know? Mm-hmm. So he, he has it both ways. You're expecting the pattern to repeat and it does, but there's something a little different about it. And then boom, meaning gets made in that way. You know, we, they had um, the audio book for this Glenn Close reads that story. Oh my god! I just heard the first clip from it. And oh my God. It's so, it's so I wish I'd had her, I wish I'd had her recording when I was writing the essay because it's so, uh, so beautiful. But George, okay, let, let's just uh, be in George's head for just one second. You are uh, 36 years old. Your first book has not come out. And uh, you're sitting at home on the Ouija board. And the Ouija board <laughs> says to you, in 25 years, Glenn Close will read your audio book. You would have been like, well, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, Glenn yeah, Close no. read your audio book. That's so amazing. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. It really is. I'm, I'm, it's, it's been really a, a, one of the great things about this is to get to meet people like Glenn. And, and she was in a pilot that we did for, oh, for, for Seok a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And she was amazing. So, so, I mean, it's really, you know, again, talk about trying to find things that keep you opening up to meet people like Glenn or Hiro Murai or, or uh, all these friends I've made. And just to watch their creative practice is so uh, inspiring. And, and you see that they're not, they're not joking around. Like Glenn Close is professionally courageous. She came out one time, it's in the Sea Oaks that there was a, a scene where um, uh, she was dead 
and covered up with a, a sheet. And her her co-star, um, Jack Quaid, was just saying a goodbye to her. And it's, it's like 95 degrees. We're in Queens in the middle of the summer at night, like 11 or midnight. Suddenly this car pulls up, Glenn gets out. And we're like, what are you doing here? You're not on schedule. I wanted to, I wanted to Jack to have somebody to talk to. So she gets on the cart and puts the, sh- the she over her head and she's never seen it. And in fact, they cut the whole scene anyway. <laughs> but, she, <laughs> but she came out just, <laughs> she came out for art, you know, she mm-hmm. really did. And that mm-hmm. so it was very, very lovely to, to get to know people like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. That is so cool. And by the way, they should have picked that up. Sea Oak was a great pilot that uh, this is back when Amazon for listeners, when Amazon would put up their slate of pilots for people to vote on, um, which was the dumbest thing in the history of American television. Well, yeah, second only to Quibi. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a great pilot. And if it was out today, it would be you'd already have, you know, three seasons. Very upset. Yeah, I, I, that was a heartbreaker. That was a heartbreaker. But you know, if if that if they had picked it up, I wouldn't have gotten to write this Russian book. So, it's all right. To our benefit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, George, for uh, for writing this book and and then for joining us today. This has been a really, really. If I mean, for me, I feel like so many writing books that I've read and then writing teachers I've had. Uh, I, I, I walk away feeling more pressure uh, and something it's something that is I really, really appreciate is that you, you actually spend so much of energy taking pressure off of writing mm-hmm. and, and, and that makes it somehow uh, better and stronger. And I love that. And I just, I yeah. really appreciate that. And I, I, like I said, I really wish I had had you when I was getting my MFA, uh, but uh, oh, well, thank I have you this for book instead. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, no, yeah this, really is, this is great, George. Thank wow. you so much. And I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to be taking everything that you say, putting my name on it and giving it to my students in class on <laughs> Monday. Right ahead. I don't that's, Go right I ahead. That's we're, we're just trying to help. We're trying to help these poor kids. Trying to, trying to keep them out of law school, for God's sake. <laughs> the world doesn't need is more lawyers. We no, need more th- writers, thank- damn it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Th- thank you guys so much. You're, you're a totally wonderful, charming group, and I'm really happy to have met you. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.